Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Some of you are new. Maybe this is your first time here. I've met a few of you walking in. If I haven't done so, I'd love to do so after the service. I'll be right at the back at those back doors, so stop by and say hello. Uh, if you're not new, welcome back. We are closing out our series, Broken People, Big God, today. And so if you haven't been with us, uh, just briefly, we went through, we're going through four characters, specifically in the Old Testament, who God used in significant ways, but we realize as we read their stories that they're broken just like you and me. But God used them. And what we've said every week of this series is that the goal is not to elevate them as legends, but it's also not to bash them as lame. Instead, it's to learn. To learn, how did God use them amidst their flaws? How is he faithful amidst all of that? How can he be faithful amidst our flaws today? And, and what does that look like? And so today we're looking at the story of Esther. Esther, if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, it's found in the book of Esther. That's in your Old Testament. It's about halfway through your Old Testament. And so as you find Ezra, Nehemiah, then you'll see Esther just to the right of that. So find that. You can also look on the screen with us. And what's interesting about the book of Esther, just so you know, on the front end, is it doesn't directly mention the name of God anywhere in the book. Uh, it's the only book of our Bible that's like that. It doesn't mention the name of God. Not only that, there's nothing supernatural. And so the, the rest of the stories we've been looking at through this series, there's always this supernatural miracle occurrence that we, we look at and say, wow, you can totally see God moving in and through that situation. And in the book of Esther, it doesn't have that. There's no miracle. There's no prophecy. There's no vision. There's no dream. But what you see, and I, I want you to see as we go through this story today, is that God uses ordinary circumstances to bring about extraordinary outcomes. And, that, and that's what God's going to do in the story of Esther. As we back up a little bit to see where we are in the story of God, we, we have the Israelites living in exile at this time. And so they're away from their land. They've been so in that situation for about a hundred years, and they've previously been ruled by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe if you're familiar with a guy named Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel in the lion's den, right? You know about Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar rules over these Jewish exiles, and then he gets defeated by a guy named King Darius of Persia. And when King Darius of Persia dies, a guy named King Xerxes takes over. And so King Xerxes is ruling over this huge empire, the Persian Empire, and the Jewish exiles are part of that. They're under his rule and reign. So you need to know from the start a little bit about King Xerxes. He was king of Persia from 486 to 464 B.C., and I know some of you are thinking, like, Tim, I have no idea when that is, or why do I need to know that? I'll, I want you to see that because King Xerxes was a real guy, okay? This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a, a Disney movie, although it kind of seems like one at times with a, a young princess. This is a real king. These are real people, and God is using these real circumstances to move in a powerful way. And so King Xerxes, this is when he's ruling Again, on the front end, uh, depending on your translation, if you're using ESV, that's the one we use, it uses his name as King Ahasuerus. Say that five times fast. King Ahasuerus. Uh, other translations, like maybe the NIV, the New International Version, it says Xerxes. And so maybe you're wondering, like, Tim, is that two different people? No, it's the same guy. King Xerxes is his Greek name. 
Ahasuerus is his Persian name. Now, most of our translations use Xerxes, and if you read children's stories, it says Xerxes. Now, I don't know that there's any theological reason for that. I think it's because they didn't want to pronounce Ahasuerus, because his name is mentioned in here a lot. And so there's the deal on his name. We'll, we'll talk about him as King Xerxes for the most part uh, and so don't let that confuse you. Let's, let's get into the story. I want to give you some background. Just like with all of these characters, we do a flyover of their, of their story. So you should go back and read the book of Esther. But I want to catch you up just briefly. Uh, chapter 1, King Xerxes is having a 180-day party. So he's having a, a party for about six months. And if that's not enough, he goes on to have an after party uh, for seven days. And on the last day of this seven-day party... We read in chapter 1, verse 10, it tells us the heart of the king was merry with wine. And so to be blunt, he is drunk. And he makes a really significant decision when he's drunk, which is never a good idea. And he decides to take Vashti, who is his wife, who is the queen of Persia, and he decides that she should come before him and his men at this party. Listen, this is a true, true story. At this party, he wants to parade his wife in front of all these other men. Now, scholars debate, like, what would she have done? Would she have come and danced for them? Would she have come and done something more provocative for them? Would she have just come and just sat there while all of them looked at her and gazed on her beauty? We don't know, but he calls her before him, and something interesting happens. She says, no. And we don't know a lot about Vashti. We don't know a lot about her from the Bible. But just as a father of two daughters, can, can, we, just, can we just celebrate Vashti real quick? Yeah, I mean, can we give her a little hand clap? I mean, any dads of daughters? Yeah, can we just give it up for Vashti, right? Like, I mean, Vashti is subject to the king. Like, it could cost her her life to refuse a command of the king. And she says no. And we don't know why she says no, but I'm just thankful she says no. Like, I, I want my daughter to have a, a poster of Vashti on her wall. Like, they need to make a Disney movie just about that scene. Like, a corrupt guy asks you as a, a woman to do something idiotic, to do something that would probably promote your beauty and promote your stature, but in that moment you say no I would take my daughter to see that Disney movie. Well, the king is, is not clapping. Uh, he is outraged. And his advisors are fearful. And here's why they're fearful. This is all in chapter 1. You can go back and read it on your own. His advisors are fearful because they think, King, you're the example. King, you set the tone. You set the bar. I mean, inviting your wife to come in and parade herself in front of us, I mean, that's okay. It's okay if that tone gets set. But setting the tone of allowing your wife to refuse something like that, we can't let that happen. A king, you got to put your foot down. I mean, if this happens with your wife, she's the queen, it's going to happen with all of our wives. And as we make idiotic requests to our wives, they'll start thinking they can say no, too. And so his advisors are fearful that this is going to happen, and so they tell the king to banish her, and he does. He gets rid of her. My wife and I were reading this uh, book this week on marriage. It's called What Did You Expect? It's by a guy named Paul Tripp. Highly recommend it if you're married or even if you aspire to marriage one day. It's a very good book. What did you expect? And as we're reading it, Paul Tripp says something that I thought was really interesting, and I think it applies in this situation. He says this. 
we often want our spouses to love us as much as we love ourselves. We often want our spouses to love us as much as we love ourselves. You see, a lot of us in our marriages, a lot of our issues come down to that. We love ourselves so much, and when our spouse doesn't do the same, we have conflict. And that's what we're experiencing in this moment with King Xerxes and his wife, Vashti. He is saying, I love me some me, to quote the great theologian T.O. And she doesn't cooperate with that. She doesn't respond to his self-love. And so she's removed, and they're not married any longer. We can learn a lot, even just from that, in the story of Esther. Later, um, King Xerxes regrets this decision. He begins to, to be lonely, and he wants a wife. And so his advisors, these brilliant uh, think tankers that he's got next to him, they come alongside him, and they say, hey, we have a great idea. Why don't you just replace Vashti with another woman? But instead of, you know, like going out and pursuing a wife and sacrificing for her and cherishing her, why don't you just have all the women in the empire come to you? And why don't, instead of parading Vashti before you, we'll parade all the women before you, and you can just decide who you want. And so the king thinks this is a fantastic idea, and they begin this process. And again, just as a side What you see about the life of Xerxes is he's not an innocent guy by any means. Uh, He's a a bad king who who makes a lot of really bad decisions. But what you see also is that he has really bad friends who give really bad advice. That over and over again, he listens to these people. Later, a guy named Haman who's equally as cruel. He listens to these people around him that are close to him. And he makes decisions based off that that hurt himself and that hurt other people. And so listen, as you look at your life, some of you are in the same boat. Some of you have friends in your life who over and over help you make bad decisions. They help facilitate hurtful and harmful decisions in your life that affect others as well. And so you have people that come along in your life, maybe in your marriage, and your marriage is difficult, and they say, bro, you need to get away from her. You just need to take off. I mean, you deserve more than this. You just should leave her. I mean, treat yourself, right? You have friends that come alongside you. Life is hard. Your job is hard. Things are difficult. And instead of endure, they say exit. Instead of commit, they say compromise. Listen, if you are thinking about friends in your life right now that are like that in your past, your present, you need to find some new friends. You need to be a different friend to others because it's really important. Your friends will help determine the direction of your life, and you see it in the life of Xerxes. And so as we go on, he ends up getting some different kind of influence. We see Esther show up on the scene. That's chapter 2. Savannah just read it, verses 5 and 6. We're first introduced to a guy named Mordecai. Mordecai, just a little bit about him. He's a court official working for the palace. He's living, and they're all living in the capital city called Susa of Persia at the time. And Mordecai raises Esther. And so we see and read about that Esther's parents had died. And so Esther... uh, Esther's cousin is Mordecai. He's he's an older cousin, so more like an uncle if you're picturing it. But he's her guardian. He's raising her. And we see in verse 7 that he raises her like his own daughter. And then in verse 8, 
this Jewish exile, this young girl is taken to the palace to be a part of this contest. And as you, as you continue to read in chapter 2, she gains favor in the palace. She ultimately wins a night with the king in his quarters overnight, just like all the other women as a part of this contest, and she ends up being chosen as queen. Now, I want to stop for a second and help you realize what just took place. Esther enters this contest that glorifies sexuality, that objectifies women, also, she could marry a pagan king. Remember, Esther is an Israelite. She has the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who she believes in. And she enters this contest that objectifies women, that glorifies sexuality, so that she can end up marrying a pagan king. Not only that, verse 10 and 20 of chapter 2 are clear. She hides her Jewish heritage. Mordecai tells her to do so, but she goes along with that. And so some of the movies you've seen of Esther is humming hymns privately. Esther is, um, is praying, and Esther's encouraging other women to believe in God. But we don't read that in the actual Bible. And so we don't know if that was the case. What we do see is her hiding her faith in God, her not identifying as a person of faith in God, and her sell selling herself out for this pagan king. Now, why do I say all that? I say all that because I want you to see that just like the rest of these people that we've been looking at over the last four weeks, Esther is broken, but God is big. Esther is flawed, but God is faithful. That we can imagine scenarios, and maybe you've seen it in the movies, like maybe, yeah, she, she uh, objectifies herself, and she enters this contest, but, you know, it was her dignity that really stood out, right? Like, I mean, she just, she didn't parade herself. She, it was her actual dignity, dignity or kindness. That's what really won her the heart of the king. You can look at when she stays overnight with the king in his quarters, and you can think, ah, oh, she didn't wow him with her intellect. I mean, she didn't wow him with her sexuality. She wowed him with her intellect. I mean, I'm sure they didn't do anything physical, I mean, you can think she was. She was walking around the palace, humming hymns privately, grabbing somebody secretively, meditating on scripture together, and having a little Bible study. Right? We can assume all that, but that, those are all assumptions. And so what we see is, is that Esther goes on to be a great example of virtue, but she doesn't start out that way. She doesn't. If you just look at what the text tells us, she doesn't start out that way. And so I say that again so that you see that Esther's in one place of inadequacy, and God takes her to a place of influence. Do you see that? Esther doesn't show up on the scene as this heroic princess who saves her Jewish people. Like, God orchestrates that. God brings that about. And so just like in your life, maybe some of you are here, and you've lived for the approval of others. Maybe some of you are here and you've misused your sexuality. Maybe some of you are here, and if you're honest, you have hid your faith at work, amongst friends, amongst family. You've compromised your integrity. But for whatever reason, you're here today. And listen, as we look at the, the story of Esther, we're going to see a lot that she goes on to do in the future. Her past isn't so great, but her future is where God orchestrates and uses her in a mighty way. And maybe that's you. You're here today. You have the opportunity for your story not to end where it is right now. Whatever you're walking in with, maybe you've abused things sexually, maybe you've hid your faith, all these things compromise your integrity, you have the opportunity today for your story to be different. 
It's the way it is for Esther. Her story doesn't end here. God goes on to use it, and we see it play out in chapter 4. Now, before we read chapter 4, you need to see what has happened, because a lot has happened. You have a guy named Haman, who is King Xerxes' right-hand man. He's an evil, cruel guy, and he has an agenda to kill Mordecai. So remember, that's Esther's older cousin who has raised her. And Mordecai is also a Jew. Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman, and this frustrated Haman. And so he goes on a plot to try to kill Mordecai, and not just Mordecai, but all of the Jewish people. He wants to take them out. And so what he does is he tricks the king to enact a law to help facilitate this, to take all the Jewish people out. This is Haman. And then we come to chapter 4. Mordecai has learned about all this. Look at how uh, Esther responds as he comes to her with a messenger to try to plead for her help in this matter. Esther 4, verse 10. Look at it with me. Then Esther spoke to Hathach, that's the messenger, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So there's this Persian law that says if, um, if someone would come to the king uninvited, that they could be killed. And she's not just coming to the king uninvited. She's coming to the king to confront him on this law he just passed that would eradicate the Jewish people. And so that's the scenario. Mordecai is asking through this messenger basically for Esther to have a death wish, to go before the king knowing she could be killed. So that's the situation. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so in this passage, you see they enter a time of fasting. Fasting, if you're not familiar, is setting aside a normal, a normal dependence on something like food, so you can have a focused dependence on God. So that's what they do. Esther, uh, Mordecai, and, and some of the other Jews, they do this as she prepares to go before the king. And she acknowledges that the stakes are high in this, right? She acknowledges, I can perish. Like, I know I may die, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now, here's what's interesting. Mordecai, in verse 14, points out that God has Esther here for such a time as this. Maybe you've heard that phrase from this story. It's a powerful, powerful phrase. And it's powerful because what Mordecai is saying is that the whole reason why she's here, the whole reason why this young Jewish exiled woman is here as queen is for such a time as this. That God has placed her in the inner courts of the palace as the queen when the Jewish people desperately need it. Now, as you start to connect the dots with this, maybe you're thinking like I did as I studied this, that, okay, wait a second. 
She's here for such a time as this. Like God has sovereignly ordained for Esther to be in this position to help deliver the Jewish people. But what about the beginning of this story? What about how she got here? I mean, she objectifies herself. She glorifies sexuality. She most likely sleeps with the king. It's a pagan king. She's hiding her faith. For such a time as this, like God made all this happen, God orchestrated all of this. Listen, the book of Esther, and this is what I want you to see, the book of Esther doesn't dwell on how she got here. It it focuses on what she does from here. It doesn't dwell on how she got here, it focuses on what she does from here. And what we see is she goes on to do amazing things orchestrated by God to help rescue her people. And so listen, as you look at your life, again, however you come in here this morning, you don't need to dwell on how you got here. You need to focus on the fact that you're here and what God wants to do in front of you. And so not your, your past, but your present and your future. And listen, I'm not saying that, that God just overlooked the sins of Esther. I'm not saying that. Uh, scholars believe that maybe at some point in the palace, she realized, like, I have this prominence. I have this position but God has granted it to me, and maybe she repented. And it seems as if she, she realized what it means now to sacrifice and to follow God. And in your life, whatever you're walking in here with, you need to confess it and you need to repent. Meaning, meaning you need to take a 180 from the way you've been living, and you need to turn to God. You need to turn away from sin and turn to God. So you need to do that. But once you do that, listen, you need to be awakened to God's purposes for your future. You need to be awakened for why God has you here for such a time as this, that he wants to use you amidst your flaws, amidst your brokenness. He wants to use you and do great things through you. And so some of you are stuck. Even as we listen to a sermon like this, even as you sing, you're stuck in the circumstances of your past. You're thinking about what you did last night. You're thinking, even if you haven't crazy, crazily rebelled against God, you're thinking about the ways in which you've put other things in place of God. The ways you've been stagnant in your faith, the ways you haven't been praying, the ways you haven't been reading your Bible, maybe some of you that's just, it's literally holding you back from singing a song because of guilt and shame. Listen, you need to confess it and you need to repent and then you need to move forward. That God wants to use you. He he has you here for such a time as this. He has you here in your marriage, in your job, in your neighborhood because he wants to use you and use you to help others see God and to be rescued by him. And so we need to have that mindset as we move forward about our lives. And we see how God goes on to do this with Esther and use her in a mighty way. Look at Esther chapter 7. Esther 7 verse 1, it says this. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, 
Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And so what has happened, again, just to catch you up, is Esther goes on to approach the king. And she asks for his favor. He doesn't kill her. He extends his scepter, which is a sign of grace and mercy to her. He asks her over and over, Esther, what would you like me to do? Even if you want half my kingdom, I'll, I'll give that to you. So God has given her incredible favor before the king. And in this moment, Haman, this evil guy who's plotted to kill Mordecai and plotted to kill the Jews, Esther points out that he's trying to kill her because she's a Jew. And so the king says, wait, wait a second, who is this? Let me know who it is. And she says, it's Haman, your right-hand man. He's trying to kill me because I'm Jewish. He's trying to kill all of my people. And so Haman is found out. The king goes on to enact a new law to save the Jews, not destroy them. Haman's plot backfires. If you read some of the story, he had a gallow ready to hang Mordecai for not bowing to him and not respecting him. What we see is Haman goes on to hang from that gallow, that Haman is killed. And so everything is switched around from a night where Haman thought he was going to get this plot organized and get rid of the Jewish people. He ends up getting killed, and the Jewish people get saved because Esther steps out in faith and approaches the king against all odds. And God uses her to influence the king. And what happens with the Jewish people is they're not just saved, they are completely restored. We get a picture of that in chapter 9. Go on and look at chapter 9 with me or follow along on the screen. It says this. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them for sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. It's interesting. If you read the whole thing, you would see that people at this time began declaring themselves Jewish. At one point, you see that the reverse happens. And so um, Haman wanted to kill all the Jews, wanted to take them out. Esther, the queen, is hiding her Jewish faith. And what you see is Esther and God, through Esther, begins to influence this situation, that people go from hiding their Jewish faith to claiming a Jewish faith, to declaring themselves Jewish so that they could be on the right side of things. And in chapter 9, they, they celebrate this. They've been restored. They go from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to holiday. That holiday is actually something that still gets celebrated today. It's a holiday called Purim. It's where the Jewish people remember this, remember this event where Esther helped deliver God's people. They still celebrate that today because Esther was willing to make a courageous decision and step out in faith, and God used that to influence not only a nation but generations to come. And so as we look at that, it might be easy to look at Esther as an example that inspires us. But you need to know that we need more than that. Like as we, as we read this story, and maybe you've heard this story before, it might be easy to look at Esther as an example for inspiration. But you need more than that. You need to be, you need to be empowered. And Esther can't do that. 
But Jesus Christ can. And as you look at the story of Esther, it points us to a greater story. It points us to a greater hero. And you see, what, what's sad and what's tragic about the Jewish people is today they celebrate this holiday, Purim. They celebrate that they were delivered through the hands of Esther, from the hands of Haman. And they remember this and they celebrate it, but they miss the ultimate rescue. They miss Jesus Christ. And you and I, as we gather here today, even as we look at the story of Esther in the Old Testament, ultimately what we want to see is not an example to inspire us from Esther, but an empowering Jesus Christ who moves us to experience what we see in the life of Esther. And as we look at the life of Jesus and what he accomplished, he lived in the ultimate palace, right? Jesus lived in heaven in ultimate glory. Esther was a queen in a physical palace. Jesus is in the ultimate palace for eternity, at the throne of the universe. And he leaves that to come and get you. And nobody had to pressure him to do that. Philippians 2 says he empties himself. So whereas Esther has to be talked into this by Mordecai, reasoned with, Jesus doesn't. He empties himself and he comes and he leaves his palace to come get us. And he doesn't just risk his life, he gives his life. And I want you to imagine for a moment, chapter 7, we read about Esther going to Haman and accusing him, right? Haman gets found out. His plot, his evil plot, his glory hunger gets found out and he ends up dying. And maybe as you've seen that in the movie, or maybe as we just read it a few moments ago in chapter 7, as you see Esther say, it's him. He's the one who's done this. And maybe as you read that, as I did, and you thought, yeah, get him, Esther. Like, you go, girl. Like, yeah, go after Haman, this evil guy. Like, he gets found out and brought to justice. And as you read that, maybe some of you have those feelings. Until we begin to realize that in that moment, you and I are more like Haman than Esther. Like that you and I are glory hungry, that we're power hungry, that we want to be in the place of the king, don't we? And that to do that, we often hurt ourselves, we hurt others to maneuver and manipulate situations to get ahead. That we're often like Haman, not Esther, in that moment. And as we realize that, maybe you go back to chapter 7 and you say, Esther, take it easy on Haman. <laughs> I mean, goodness, the guy's made some mistakes, but just, just forgive him. I mean, all could be, well, Esther, you're the queen. Just do that for him. Ease up off Haman. As we realize, we're very similar to him. But listen, what if? What if the scenario in chapter 7 did play out a little bit differently? So what happens is she accuses him, he gets found out, and he's killed. What if it played out differently? What if in that moment, Haman's plot is figured out. He's found out before the king. He's going to kill the Jewish people. He's really glory hungry. He wants to be king. And in that moment, before the king, before Esther, Esther doesn't accuse him, but she shows him grace. Like imagine in that moment, what if Esther said to Haman, says, I know that you tried to kill my people. I know that you tried to kill my cousin who raised me. I know that you were power hungry, but I love you, I forgive you, and not only that, I know you deserve to die, but I'm going to take that death upon myself, and I, Esther, am going to die in your place. Imagine if that would have happened. That would have been amazing, right? That's exactly what Jesus does, is all of us 
are some version of Haman at some point in our lives. We're before the king, and we've all been found out. God knows. He knows how you've abused your sexuality. He knows how you've lied. He knows how you've been uh, a gossiper, a slanderer. He knows how you've neglected him. He knows how you've looked out for your own power and your own glory. He knows how you've been me-centered and not God-centered. God knows all of that. You have been found out, just like Haman. But in that moment, he says, I love you, I forgive you, and he sends Jesus to take the death that you and I deserve upon himself. And it doesn't end there. God restores Jesus, not to the throne of a King Xerxes, but to the throne of the universe. And Jesus continues to this day to use his good favor to bring blessing and to rescue not just a nation, but the whole world. Do you see that? Do you see the glory of Jesus Christ, that he is our ultimate rescue? Sometimes when we read these stories, we put ourselves in the place of the hero. We all want to be the Esther. And listen, God can use you to do significant things, and we need to step out in faith to see that happen. But we need to see that Jesus, ultimately, he rescues us, that he empowers us, that he is the goal, that he's the one we look to and worship and adore. In this story and in every story. And so what does it look like to take steps? As we look to Jesus, as we elevate him, as we learn from the life of Esther, how do we live this out? I just want to give you three things as we close. The first is this, that you would trust that every time is a time appointed by God. So remember, chapter 4, it says, for for such a time as this, Mordecai says that to Esther, for such a time as this, this is why you're here. God's orchestrating all this behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes through you for such a time as this. This is why you're here. You need to know that every time is like that. That every time is such a time as this. That God has ordained and appointed this time for you to be in Phoenix, to be sitting here at Phoenix Bible Church on a Sunday morning in the thick of the hot sauna that we live in, right? Some of you are thinking, no, God would never appoint that. I should be in a cool place, like in Montana. But no, he has you here. He has you here in your job. He has you here in this church. He has you here in your marriage. He has you here in your circumstances. Every time is a a God-appointed time where he wants to use you and mold you and shape you. Do you see your life like that? Do you see the time that you're in right now? Maybe it's in the midst of failure, maybe it's in the midst of a lot of grief and suffering. Do you see God has you here? Do you you look beyond the hurt and see that God has you here for a purpose and he wants to use you and mold you and shape you in the midst of that? Every time is a time appointed by God. The second thing is that you would see obstacles and ordinary as opportunities for influence. And so what you see in the life of Esther is she has some obstacles, right? If she goes before the the king, she could be killed. And so it would have been easier for just to not do anything. We look at the whole of the book. There's no miracle. There's no mention of God. It could be easy to think, well, where is God? He's not doing anything. Maybe some of you see that in your life. You have some obstacles, and you have a lot of ordinary. And you're thinking, God, are you here? Are you moving? I'm praying. I don't see anything. The pain's not going away. The sin isn't getting easier to avoid. And you're wondering, like, is God here? It seems ordinary. There seems to be some 
obstacles and what you see and what we learn in the life of Esther is that God uses obstacles and the ordinary to bring about extraordinary outcomes. That God is working behind the scenes. He's directing everything. Even if you can't see him in the movie, he's behind the scenes directing everything. And you would see it that way. You would see the normal circumstances in your life. When somebody comes to you as a friend and they challenge you to stay committed to your spouse, they challenge you to lead your spouse, to read scripture, to pray with your spouse, did you know that's God moving? When you read something or think about something or listen to a song and your heart is directed towards God instead of idols, that's God moving that he moves through obstacles, that he moves through the ordinary, and that you would see that in your life. The third thing, that you would use your platform for a greater purpose. Esther faced this decision in her life. Is she going to use her platform as the queen in the palace to protect herself? Or is she going to leverage that position to help others and to accomplish the mission of God? And you have the same decision to make. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not a queen, I'm not in a palace. But listen, you have your own palace. You have your job, you have your home, you have your neighborhood, you have your family, you have your friends. Those are all your spheres of influence. Just like Esther had that, you have a platform, whatever it is. Are you going to use that to get born for yourself, to protect yourself, or are you going to leverage that for God and his name and fame and his purposes? We all need to ask that. What does that look like? That you would take your voice and you wouldn't just use it to, to blabber on in your job to get promotions, but you would use it to share your faith. That you would take your skill, that you would figure out, God, how have you wired me? How have you gifted me? And how can I use that to further your kingdom? Listen, that doesn't mean you have to quit your job and go into the ministry or work at a nonprofit. It just means, how has God wired me? I mean, maybe some of you got skilled in the area of um, lighting and production, and you could help fix our lights. You never know, right? Maybe some of you God has skilled in the arts, and, and you can help people see how, how God has, has painted everything in creation, and you can illustrate that with the arts. Maybe some of you God has skilled with technology, and you can help online in, a, in an age of social media where everybody's on that all the time, and you can point people, not to politics, but to the person of Jesus Christ. What if you used your platform and you leveraged it in whatever area of influence you have for the name and fame of Jesus and not just your own? And then what if you used your resources? What if you didn't just hoard things to keep them for yourself, but what if you gave those things away, your money, your time, and your talent, to give those things away to, to create an influence that goes beyond you, that you are here for such a time as this, just like Esther, and that God wants to use you that he doesn't want you to dwell in your past, he wants you to address it, but that you would focus on your present and your future and how he might use you in significant ways in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this story of Esther. I thank you that you use ordinary circumstances to bring about extraordinary outcomes, that the whole book of Esther is a testament to that. God, I pray as we, as we look at that story and as we look at all of these four stories, God, that we would learn 
that we would learn from their lives. We would learn from the supposed good people and the supposed bad people and realize we're all bad people in need of Jesus Christ. And that as we begin to follow you, that we can look at these stories and we can learn how you shape them and how you can shape us, how you use them and how you can use us. God, I pray for the men and women in this room that even in this moment, God, if there is unrepented sin, if there's unconfessed sin, that they would take a moment now to confess it, to turn away from it, and to turn to you. And that going forward, they would see you use them in a mighty way. That going forward, they would begin to step out in faith and realize because of the grace of Jesus, by the Spirit of God, they can be used by you. In their sphere of influence, whatever that may be, God, what if we all did that? May you give us a picture of what that could look like and help us to walk towards that end. For the fame and in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.